welcome to the first episode of a podcast <laughs> a, po- a podcast we don't have a name for yet but we will have a name yeah exactly <laughs> when we're ready uh the podcast. so the podcast so maybe maybe we should tell everyone who we are since maybe they don't know who we are or they probably everybody knows who we are but let's tell them anyway <laughs> sounds good do you want to go first Sure. Uh, I'm Jordan Draper. I am a board game designer, nomad, um, artist designer. (laughs) I speak multiple languages, and I just like making things, exploring the world, and learning. Uh, And we have been good friends for a long time, so <laughs> that's why we decided to have a conversational podcast, and then Nick can tell everyone who he is. Yeah. Um, it's it's interesting that we've been friends for so long, but kind of have these uh, different backgrounds. Well, it, we have a lot of shared background, obviously, but um, yeah, kind of different, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, educational backgrounds or experiences. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm Nick Halper. Um, I actually started off as a cellular neuroscientist. That was my original training. Uh, and I entered this this really cool, got an opportunity to enter this really cool brain-computer interfacing company as a kind of uh, engineer and uh, kind of moved into this uh, clinical product strategy uh, area within that company and uh, really kind of enjoyed working on the, the human aspect of brain-computer interfaces and looking at the the types of people that use those and pick them up and kind of what they're looking for in them. And now uh, I'm currently working on starting a new company uh, within that realm, which is, I guess, kind of a secret for now. (laughs) Uh, So I won't say too much about it. Um, But yeah, I I also, I guess, used to attempt to be a board game designer with Jordan. (laughs) Uh, He has gone on to do that much more successfully than our first attempts. And before before that, we were all, we also had a company. We were making apps, games for phones, and then we started making board games. Right. And, it, and before that, before that, we were in a band as well, and we played music. So there's lots of stuff we we're, we're just gonna fly past. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but yeah, that's that's a brief introduction of who we are. Uh, we'll probably talk more about some of that stuff another time if if it's the right thing. But today we're gonna talk about food supply chains. Because I think this is really a really interesting uh, topic, given the circumstances of the world and COVID and supply chains coming to light. And also just the fact that this goes unseen by a large portion of the population. And like it works differently everywhere in the world. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think there's a lot of people who've never even, maybe especially in the US, who've never even thought about the food supply chain right there was just an infinite abundance of food at all times and the first time they went to the grocery store and there like wasn't ground beef in stock they were like what is going on (laughs) uh so i think this is yeah definitely relevant timing um and a super interesting kind of system to explore yeah i mean if you think about it what this goes along like you could you could lay out a historical track an anthropological track of uh, how food supply chains have worked since we started um, agriculture as a species. And when we started getting trade, like that's when all of this began and we were, we, we started discovering different foods from different places. But it, then it, it seems to have become like a population control issue where now we just have to feed enough people. That's, that's how I see it anyway. Yeah, I, I think it is interesting to think about it starting kind of back at like early agriculture, like... Because it's like, obviously, you were hunting and gathering or whatever before that, and you you stored some food or whatever from your kills or your, your berry picking. <laughs> um, but that was like kind of a, a minor thing. <laughs> uh, but then as soon as agriculture gets up, it's like, okay, now we can build cities. And that's that's all fine and well. You're like getting food uh, from your farms and stuff into your, your little townships, whatever you want to call them. Um, but as soon as your city started getting big enough that it's like, it became an issue even inside of the city. And now to this point where we have like global food supply chains, people have kind of come to expect we, we certain types of resources in certain areas because we don't grow everything locally, like good enough to feed somebody like the kind of appropriate diet they might need. Yeah. And 
that is also an interesting point that it wouldn't be possible to live in cities without food supply chains. Uh, and e- even now, we started realizing how fragile that whole system is because we're not producing most of the food from within the city. Whereas when when we first started having cities, uh, when I was studying architecture, was we had to, to learn a lot about this as well because the whole point of building cities and building certain storehouses was just for the fact that you could have enough food on hand to stay in one place mm, right mm-hmm. and we we still have that as a challenge um because we want to live so compact and we want to have so many people uh, in a populace in one area that we, we need to bring in enough food um and then we get into controversies with uh gene editing and making sure that we can supply that with monocrops uh and i don't i, I think this is a fun controversial thing because I, there's nothing different or weird about genetically modified food, in my opinion, because it's literally just code, right? The, the DNA of, of grain is just, just code, computer code, in, in one way to look at it. Um, uh, what's your take on that, Nick, being <laughs> someone who's more into the biological sciences? Yeah, um, I, I kind of remember this specific story from my, it was a chemistry professor, professor I guess, uh, in my biochem class. And he, I remember it was kind of around this like time period where people, there's this viral video going around about, um, I think it was called pink slime or something, which was effectively like the precursor to a chicken nugget. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I know this isn't grain, but it's, uh, I guess, the same concept. So effectively like, it's kind of hard to like make and process chicken. There's like all these like irregularities in meat and like, obviously it's, it's hard for somebody who's really trying to like de-risk food and like be safe about food processing to, and also want it to be really like regularized to try to like make these like, you know, nice chicken breast cutlets for a billion people a day or whatever McDonald's serves. (laughs) And so, Mm -hmm. um, what they do basically is they take these proteases, these, um, enzymes that effectively break down proteins so like the protein of the muscle and chicken and reconstitute it so effectively they take these proteases so that it's all broken down and it becomes like liquid protein and then they remove the proteases effectively and reconstitute it into a chicken nugget shape or whatever else they need to make it out of and obviously this is to a lot of people this is like really horrifying <laughs> um and i understand this is not exactly within gmos so i'll get there in a second but it just kind of reminded me of it um and I, this professor was just like i got no problem with that like i know how a protease works like it's the same protein it's just like structured slightly differently like i'll still eat it are you saying that that multiple chicken multiple chickens are are being like mutated together into chunks of chicken is that what you just said basically like if you imagine like a step back and say okay we have like this nice butcher or whatever and we get these nice cuts of meat these cuts of meat are hard to put into chicken nugget form so we'll basically dissolve them and then reform them into chicken nugget shapes um so yeah it's a whole like brand of many chickens i guess um i don't know why i i didn't know that that is disgusting in a great way i guess <laughs> it's like it's, it's, it's really feels mutant and the fact that i've been eating that since i was a child is a little bit disturbing yeah <laughs> i mean i don't i'm a i'm a vegetarian now but i have eaten that yeah i mean i i'm also pretty much vegetarian most of the time and uh but still i guess this process like this this part of the process is not the like concerning part to me i guess in some ways like there's other reasons that i i prefer to eat vegetarian um and kind of like the professor he was just like yeah that's that's no problem because like we understand that and it's kind of the same thing with like gmos um i mean when you really think about like what a, a gmo is like humans have been genetically modifying crops and animals uh, forever basically um ever since we started farming you choose the wheat that like grows the strongest to grow be the seeds for the new wheat that you grow <laughs> and like yeah so selective breeding yeah. right that's the whole the, the premise and just because we can go in and uh modify things at a more refined uh selection doesn't mean that it's any different um but it, it is different to like a social construct thinking about that because you consider that like somebody has purposefully done something rather than having it naturally like evolve within a choice. And th- there does seem to be a line of distinction between that for, for a lot of people. For sure. And, and I guess when you go to, and you start thinking about it as, as code that you can edit, like 
I know a lot of really bad computer programmers. <laughs> and so it's like, okay, what, what, how confident are we that these genetic programmers are, you know, building something that's uh, quote unquote bug free, doesn't have some secret toxin that the wheat now produces because they changed it. Yeah. And okay. So th- like, this is an interesting point that this has been necessary to produce enough food without I guess taking on more of a, a a local take where you want to have like greenhouses and indoor farms and everything mm-hmm. growing vegetables, which just isn't quite feasible from, I would say, a, an energy and space perspective yet. But um, because of that not being a solution just yet, we we are stuck waiting for uh, certain foods to be delivered. Um, and if something happens to that supply chain, then people would die. So that, that, that's maybe the most important thing uh, on the planet right now is is keeping that supply chain going. It, it's like number one priority for humanity Yeah, and, <laughs> in some ways. And I think like you said, I mean, GMOs in a large part uh, are, play a big part in that, I should say. Um, like rice is, is something we like to think of as this like really common commodity that's really easy to get because right? it's just like so cheap go to the store and buy a bag of rice and you know um Mm -hmm. but it's actually i mean really quite hard to produce and it's probably one of the most like gmo focused foods that we eat in some ways um yeah yeah on that point isn't so so there's so many different kinds of rice and not all of it is genetically modified i'm not even sure how much of it is in the world i'm sure like a good majority right but even in asia like where it's the main stock I know that they they had issues back and forth with with genetically modified rice, like being mixed in and coming and going. Um, well, I think that's an interesting point to bring up in two ways. Um, first, just because I, there's there's so many varieties of rice, it's hard to start talking about GMO versus just like picking a different strain or species or whatever, strain. right? Um, yeah. But I think you kind of touch on another point within the supply chain which is like traceability it's like okay i mean the way that these things are structured there's so many nodes or like kind of exchanges i guess along the way that it it can be really hard to tell where something comes from so when somebody's promising you no gmo or whatever um it's hard to know how certain they are of that promise i guess (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's true i mean you can't really you're, nobody's going to dissect down to the level where you're going to check to make sure something is like an ancient grain family. I mean, I don't think, I, I doubt anybody has done that, that has cared enough about the food that they're eating to really go in and like double check it before they eat it. And so when you think about it like that, we're, we're all trusting every supply chain to just live up to what they're saying with without people like the FDA and, or uh, what's like, there's a national or, uh, organic association stamp or something in in the u.s i can't remember what it is but usda organic certified or something Mm -hmm. um they this is supposed to be the seal of approval but there's like a really vague line between what that means if pesticides are used what's what's really happened with it um and i i think this comes to a bigger point that i i think human beings are incredibly silly in the fact that we just eat and trust whatever and we make silly rules about like how much of what grain we can export and import and and we make like just insane choices about what has to move where to do what um when in reality we should just be thinking about solving hunger (laughs) yeah like how do you how do you get food to people that need it (laughs) yeah exactly um but I, i guess this is one of the struggles of a capitalist society with patents yeah i mean that that is kind of like what in my opinion what kind of feeds into it right because when you think about like supply chains um part of the reason there's been such a big focus on this like idea of like vertical integration you know where you have somebody who runs the farm and processes the food and ships it um all kind of within the same company is because of the efficiency of the supply chain management right you you have kind of like a perfect amount of information you can exactly scale your farms to your processing capacity to your distribution capacity and to the customers that you know you have um but soon as in a in a kind of uh many company market uh those things start to be kind of disjointed 
if you have a separate farming company and a separate packaging company and maybe they don't like communicate well and now you've produced too much food for what the packaging company can process and now what do you do with your food before it goes bad you just have piles of apples or whatever <laughs> yeah that's it that's super relevant in food is controlling that supply and demand aspect and making sure that you're filling those quotas and not overproducing i mean it's probably easier with grains and things that you can store but it it really does take a high level of planning and efficiency to be able to do that with with fruits and things like that i it still blows my mind that it's possible to go to the grocery store and get fresh fruit every day yeah i mean more or less fresh exactly <laughs> like it, it kind of like i sit there and look at all the avocados for example like sitting on the shelf at, at my local grocery store and there's always just so many and I'm like, are they? Are we just buying the perfect amount of avocados that like the customers in this region are just like perfectly consuming all of them? Like, it makes me wonder how much waste there is just from sitting on the shelf of that fruit, just to ensure that I like have the selection of uh, a perfectly ripe avocado at any moment. Yeah, I, I mean, I know that the grocery stores, at least in cities I've lived, throw away their produce pretty frequently. My when I was a kid, my grandma used to take me to go pick up the the throwaways from Albertsons and uh, bring it to the homeless shelter. Like that's what we did once a week. Um, It's a quote unquote problem. um, But I guess you can't like keep rotting food on the shelves either in the grocery store because that just doesn't make sense. And and you're in order to meet those quotas, you have to make sure that you overproduce to some degree, uh, which is just going to be a supply chain issue when we're trying to mass market everything to the population and we're not growing our own food. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think that's, that's part of the challenge is like, it's kind of like dictated by end consumer, like choice and happiness, or at least on the places I've lived. And so it's, it's not like a bottom up thing. It's like a top down process. So it's like the consumer wants choice. Um, but they obviously don't use each of their choices every day because they make a choice. And so <laughs> it's an inherent inefficiency, I guess. Yeah, do you, this is an interesting point too, is do you think about the food that you eat and where it comes from and like how far it travels or do you just buy whatever you feel like you want to get? So to be honest, I think it's pretty recent where I've started to think a bit more about the types of food that I buy. Um, Not pandemic recent, maybe a little bit before that, but I mean, pretty close. Um, my my first reason for thinking about it, I guess, was from, like, an environmental standpoint. I didn't like thinking about the orange that, like, sat on a truck <laughs> to drive across the U.S. to, like, Utah, where I live. Um, it mm. se- seemed kind of, like, inefficient from a kind of emissions and energy standpoint. Um, so I think that was kind of, like, my first thought. And I think it was really helped because my local grocer has started to put up all these signs about, you know, which foods come from... Uh, my local state or kind of local area uh, it makes it a little bit easier to inform me, I guess, on how to be more efficient in that way. Yeah, that that's interesting. I have thought about this a lot since I was, I think, first moved to Japan because I, I started connecting the story of the food to the person that makes it. And when you when you buy the food from the person that actually grew it and you're talking to them and they're telling you about their farm or telling you about the where they like made that particular thing you're about to eat uh it gains a whole new level of like importance and connection and then at the same time you feel better about consuming that because of all the environmental reasons but also because like you're supporting somebody who you now know (laughs) someone you talk to you're like directly giving them compensation for doing something that you enjoy and it makes that piece so much more special i think this is inherent to anything that we buy or consume as human beings, if there's a story and a, uh, a connection behind it with another human being, then it becomes more powerful and relevant to us right. for whatever reason. I, I, yeah, that makes sense. And I think, I mean, it, I think it's useful in both a, a, a personal growth kind of way, but also, I mean, people have exploited that same thing uh, in marketing, right? Like this uh, kind of boom of the farm to table restaurants uh, is just kind of evidence that people really, really do value that um, and are willing to pay extra, I should say, uh, to experience that. Yeah. And taking it even a step further though. So living in Japan, this is something that I don't think a lot of people will know, but in Japan, they have 
specialty superfruits and superfoods where uh, they try to grow the perfect fruit of every kind of fruit or the perfect uh, vegetable or something, and they'll make like this superb packaging for it. And you, so you go to the grocery store and you're like, here's the normal peaches. And then you will have these like golden white peaches and they are bigger and they're perfectly round and they're not bruised. And they're like in this amazing packaging and they cost $35. <laughs> uh, and the, oh, it's amazing. Like the, there's a mango section and the mangoes are like the, one of the prize things, mangoes and grapes. And some one mango, one humongous mango, which could be like the size of a watermelon there because they just keep growing them bigger. Uh, if it's perfect, like in every way, and they, they grade this because it's an art, then that mango could go for up to $300, $400, $500. Um, it's pretty insane. And you give that as a gift because it's like uh, a prized thing to receive from someone. Like I have given you the, the perfectly cultivated mango that was grown by a mango growing master. And this is not like, it sounds really silly maybe to to, to some cultural uh aspects of it but it, it is i think it's just beautiful i mean i loved getting a gift like that i think somebody gave me some grapes once and i i was just blown away like there were these grapes that were the size of small plums and just like it, it looked like a giant uh had picked this <laughs> from some other secret village i didn't know about but of course it was just some japanese cultivator growing the perfect grapes <laughs> that's that's really interesting it, it, it my my first reaction of course is oh like that's that's pretty silly uh, but at the same time like we do the same thing with like beef and other foods right like there's like gratings of meat and eggs that's true um but i in in a way i actually hearing about that it i kind of find it more maybe healthier <laughs> and not literally in like a healthy body sense, but like a mindset, um, then the kind of like requirements for like near perfection of like all other <laughs> fruits that are grown. Cause that, that's kind of the problem too. Like there's this, uh, whole ugly foods thing where it's like people aren't willing to eat the tomatoes with the like weird gashes in them and they won't, they won't eat the wrinkly grapes or the, whatever the carrots that are all knobbly. <laughs> um, yeah. And so in a way, I think it's kind of healthier to say, okay, these perfect fruits or whatever are like a special category and you pay for those. And that's like an art and it's something you care about and value. But like, if you're looking to eat food, here's the peaches. <laughs> right, okay. Yeah. Which, and ironically, like everything else in Japan is also pristine it seems to me anyway they're just not as big and as perfectly perfect uh but every every like grocery store is more or less feels like a local grocery store everything is is coming from a neighborhood nearby or a farm nearby and japan really incentivizes people to to get on their own farm so they'll basically give you land for free if you want to buy for like two thousand dollars you could buy a house and start a farm in japan like an hour outside of a city and they would love to have you come do that. If anybody's looking to do that, that is a thing you can do. Um, but you have to live there for two years, I think. Um, or there's penalties. <laughs> I, I wonder if there's something about Japan's geography that also, I'm just going to take a wild stab here. <laughs> it's, it's Japan's geography that also kind of um, caters to this ability to provide like high variety locally because J- Japan's pretty long, like north to south. And so you you probably get some like good at least semi-good climate variation uh, with a relatively small landmass. Because U.S. is also big low to south, but you have this like gigantic landmass. And so even if you're shipping something from the nice sunny part of the U.S., it's still going like, <laughs> you know, thousands of miles to get to you. Uh, so I wonder if Japan has yeah, there's that also, There's also less fertile soil in the U.S. than Japan. And uh, I'm, I'm in Norway now, and that's the same situation here. Like. I'm not, I'm not actually sure how much farmable land is here, but Norway is famous for just having family farms everywhere. And uh, even now, every farmer is part of some like union collective company and everybody gets the same wages for what they produce. Uh, so that, like their milk company is called Tina and all of the dairy farmers um, basically get the same they, they like put their milk together and then it just gets randomly put into whatever packaging so you don't really know where your milk is coming from you just know it's coming from a local mm-hmm. farm of cows yeah um i had a, I had a good talk with somebody here who works on a cow milk farm with their dad and that's just what the two of them do they just get up and milk 
the cows with their milking machines every day and they get their set price and then it goes out and gets packaged somewhere else. Uh, just, I couldn't imagine doing that for work, just like mass producing cow milk. And that, that is your job and you live on a farm and that's what you do every day. It kind of blows my mind. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's a, it's a different kind of, uh, I guess like working mindset. I mean, I, I suppose there's like some kind of intrigue and like creativity involved in some ways, but it's, yeah, it's definitely a different type of workflow. Um, I, I, th- I think to your point about like the local family farms in Norway, I, I think in my experience traveling uh, around Europe a bit, if I always got the impression that Europeans seemed to, to be a little bit more content with getting things that are, are kind of having their choice set limited a little bit in exchange for this kind of like local production. Uh, Cause this is a, one of the odd things in my experience of living in the U S um, especially where I live, just like this food paradise <laughs> oasis. Um, there's just so many, so many options from so many places. I mean, we import food from everywhere and yeah, it's, it's just an endless selection of choice. I mean, even I live in, I mean, Utah is a kind of rural U S state. Right. And I have a choice of like, 45 different olive oils or something from <laughs> different countries around Europe and the world. Um, and that's like obviously packaged. So that's maybe a little bit easier, but even fresh fruits just from all over the place. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I completely agree with that. I will say though, that living in both Japan and Norway, the, the food feels like it didn't travel as far. It feels more uh, unique as in each piece isn't this same shape and size as it feels like it is in the u.s like it when you go look at a carton of of peaches or oranges they look exactly the same almost there's not a lot of variation um or like spots that are off because they probably all clones of the same monster (laughs) um but (laughs) but here they feel a little more off and you know you can go to farmer's markets in the u.s but when you go to a farmer's market here it's like two people that live up in the mountains they have two goats and they they spent the last six months making their own goat's cheese and you can buy their special goat's cheese that comes in five different like variations of aged brown burntness uh that's just something you wouldn't get like that that level of specialty i wouldn't think you would get that in in the states as much uh i guess it depends but yeah especially to the majority of consumers like i think i'm a little bit privileged in utah just because we we are kind of rural and we do have farms around here and so you can go like it, it would be conceivable that most people could go get their food from far, farmers markets if they chose to like the farmers supplying those markets could choose to like shift their supply and how they distribute to grocery stores versus like a fresh farmers market and like adjust to that demand but i can't imagine the same thing could happen in uh san francisco for example yeah that's true i mean the, the larger the city, the, I guess the more difficult it gets, the less people are going to be making local food, obviously. Um, uh, so I kind of I wanted to make sure that we get in this topic of creating new types of food synthetically, such as like fake meats and mm-hmm. um, where the biology of this overlaps. Because it, it would be a shame not to talk about this with you because I, I bet you know about some freak experiments <laughs> going on, Nick. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, I guess the easiest thing to start with is like the kind of like original alternative meats, which are basically just like um, more easily processed, like alternative proteins. It's like I think tofu is probably like one of the first things people think about. They're like, okay, if I'm going to be a vegetarian or a vegan, like here's my soy protein or whatever that I can eat. Soy block. (laughs) Um, So I I would say that's kind of where it all started in some ways is is when you start thinking about like synthetically processed foods, that feels to me like some of the, a big category. (laughs) But now now we're growing not just tissues and meat for consumption, but also like we're looking at using stem cells for other purposes. And is is the line really that different between creating meat to eat and creating uh, like synthetic, not synthetic, but using stem cells to like recreate parts of humans or like heal nervous systems or or whatever like that line seems pretty blurred to me it all just seems like science is moving into creating 
whatever it wants biologically. <laughs> it's just a matter of understanding how to do it, right? Yeah. Is that, is that about right? No, I, 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 would, I would say so. Um, so I think at first it was like, okay, cloning is scary, right? Because we can like just take something and copy its DNA and you have a clone of it, Dolly of the Sheep or whatever. But like, I mean, what in, in a lot of ways, like what use is a clone? In, in the reason cloning hasn't become like popular in, in farming industry, uh, when we talk about meat, for example, is because it, it actually is a, a net negative. It's more expensive to do <laughs> than just like breed animals. And you still have to raise the animal all the way. And you don't get some of the like disease resistance that comes with kind of pairwise mating and stuff like that. Um, so, but kind of coming back to it uh, from the lab perspective, <laughs> um, it, I, I would say that the yeah the next step in the progression has been okay well how do we just grow the parts or things that we need and this this whole thing has like raised both this like lab grown cell culture uh, kind of thrust that people are following and also this like tissue printing kind of thrust where you're like 3D printing biological uh, tissues or scaffolds um, and usually it's kind of the combination between these two where it gets uh, relevant or like useful so for example like it's it's kind of hard to just like grow muscle on a dish but if you can prepare this a scaffold that has the right kind of like uh, chemical soup that will encourage those cells to turn into the right type of tissue that you want um, then you can start growing muscle in a dish or basically meat in a dish uh, I don't know of any kind of uh, synthetic fruit experiments going on but that would be pretty pretty interesting to think about that you could just like print fruits with whatever kind of makeup that you want I mean, we've we've crossbred. It's that's I guess sort of a base level step of doing that, even though you don't understand all of the the st- constituents going into it. But I I do think that there should be more of an emphasis put on how environment um, changes the actual outcome of DNA and and the biological code of everything. So the conditions of the chemistry in your environment, the electrical magnetic uh environment all of this is going to come in and and tell the code of the dna what to turn into and some of these like sub variances will turn on or off right and so all of that combined together is is going to decide how something turns out and you could make just a slight variance in the environment to make a huge change in something turning into an arm versus turning into a head <laughs> if you have the same the same starting point um and that seems like the best most powerful tool to start creating freak giant watermelons that feed like a whole village or I, I mean i could just imagine like growing this huge beach ball sized watermelon just because we can just alter it a little bit and then you go in with a with a machete and hack off your watermelon for the day or whatever like i think that's going to be the future we're going to go to like a watermelon party and everybody's <laughs> going to go in and just like grab handfuls of this giant thing or we'll have like weird other mutant fruits or or mutant animal meat that people want i don't know i i just don't see i don't think it's that far off we've come pretty close already and now we're on on the verge with a lot of the tools we have yeah i mean (laughs) i like the the creative thought of a a giant communal watermelon that everybody (laughs) gets their fruit from every day um i i guess in my mind uh as much fun as that is to imagine i kind of think about it becoming uh a more like automated distribution a kind of like controlled feedback network because i think that's kind of the problem we have right now and we look at covid and pandemic and what that's done to like food supply chains um it kind of comes down to this like oh well demand just like shifted its location and we were so optimized to like serving the 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 packaged food to exactly these types of uh, distribution channels that now we can't like adjust that quickly enough and the supply on like the back end is just like building up and getting wasted. Um, Cause that was like, so you have all these restaurants shut down, but then demand in grocery store spikes and these packaging plants can't like redirect food to the right place fast enough. Um, and so in a way I kind of imagine like the situation where you could kind of like print on demand, like the whole like just in time economy thing, but just like to the very like well, theoretical it- limit. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, but then we're just talking about preservatives now and the whole fight against preservatives as well, right? I mean, this is preservatives have become the devil of food to everyone that cares about food. It's like, oh, what what extra things have been added to preserve this thing? Why why does McDonald's um, 
hamburger meat, do whatever. And we just disconnected for a second on this call. I'm going to hold on. I'm going to call Nick back. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> I think. Okay. Let me, let me connect my headphones one sec. <laughs> what just happened? What is happening? Earlier today, my computer just decided to cut power to all of its USB ports. (laughs) It was really weird. Great. Okay. Uh, That was really weird. We had a a technical difficulty, but we are back. (laughs) Um, What was was I saying? Preservatives. Preservatives. Preservatives are the devil. <laughs> preservatives are Satanism, and everybody hates preservatives. There, nobody is walking around saying that they want to eat more things that can last longer on the shelf. It has become taboo in every culture that I've ever been in, I, and I don't understand exactly why it's such a taboo. Probably because a lot of them are unhealthy, right? But when we actually break it down, like our, I guess it it's not natural, and so we hate. And we're afraid of everything that's not natural as human beings, is, is what I would say about that. And I don't know that that's really a justified fear, but culture decides what's rational and what's taboo, in my opinion, yeah. more so than logic does. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think part of it's just that maybe we don't understand it enough. Because, like you said, it's not natural for us to be able to you know, keep garlic unspoiled for so long or like whatever else that we choose to preserve. Um, or obviously more processed foods, but... Um, I mean, it, there's such a range of it. It's, it's kind of funny how humans categorize things and choose to kind of like ban things on like a, a, a big broad categorical level because like there's so many different types of preservatives, like the most common preservative, which we are very okay with is salt, right? Just like put right. Coat something in a ton it's of natural. salt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, that was the. One of the only preservatives we use for a long time, right? Or the main one, at least. Yeah, and then we're like, oh, and also let's do acid. <laughs> like, let's put some lemon juice yeah. or, like, whatever vinegar, which is basically already something that has... I mean, vinegar is a product of something, effectively, that has, like, spoiled. And it's, like... But now it, like, purifies things. It's this high acidity thing. Um, so, like, we're comfortable with those, but then as soon as you start talking about, like, EDTA or, like, some other, like... Like, oh, I don't recognize this. I'm like, well, that's just like a different type of salt <laughs> or like whatever. Um, but people are, mm-hmm. are pretty uncomfortable with it. And I, I kind of go back and forth on whether I agree with it or laugh at it in some ways. Because like, obviously, many people eat preserved foods and they're just fine. But at the same time, there's all these like studies that have shown like, as we process food, whatever exactly that means, um, more processed food is like correlated with higher incidences of like stroke and obesity and all sorts of other like conditions uh, that wouldn't necessarily just inherently tie to the fact that it's processed yeah i mean we can't i think that's a something that's really hard to ever try to understand or or rationalize because you, you just can't get to the bottom of it um there's just too many factors at play, right? That that we just can't understand it. So your only choice is to completely avoid it or to eat it in smaller quantities or to not care. Right. Yeah, exactly. But I think on the, so thinking about preservatives and also like what we were just talking about with the uh, kind of synthetic foods. I mean, imagine actually a situation where you go to the store and there's, there's no lab grown meat sitting on the shelf in plastic packaging Instead, it's it's like those uh, it's like a three D printer. You like type in okay, I want uh, wagyu beef or whatever, and you hit the code, and it like prints you some wagyu, and that's like what you take home, and it's like literally instantly fresh because it's freshly printed muscle or meat or whatever. Wouldn't it? Wouldn't it have to grow though? Wouldn't there have to be some biological processes that uh, e- evolve? You, I, I, just, I don't buy that you can print. <laughs> biological matter like on demand i think you would have to you would what you would do is like set up the 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 base starting steps and the environment for it to grow inside of i I, maybe i'm a little off base but i don't think so from what i've read (laughs) yeah i mean i think definitely the way that's going to be easiest um and probably the most like 
uh, scalable is yeah, growing steaks and dishes or whatever, <laughs> um, where you you set up the conditions and it, and it still grows. But I mean, tissue printing is is definitely a science that exists. Um, it's we yeah. we can print skin into people. Um, you can actually print it into people. <laughs> can you go into detail on how that works? I want a really, really like graphic breakdown. <laughs> I, I, how can you print skin into me? <laughs> I, I guess I wish I understood it more uh, to be able to tell you better. But kind of like back to the pink slime. <laughs> um, right. You, you can basically say, okay, I've differentiated some cells or whatever, and or separated some cells and differentiated them. And now I'm going to like uh, basically create a tool that can uh, individually manipulate individual cells. And we've had that technology for a while, but it's kind of just putting it into 3d printer form and saying, okay, I'm going to like deposit these cells on a microscopic level and create like patterns within them. And so imagine like uh, a machine that's connected to these kind of like vats of different cell types. Like maybe you have, uh, muscle cells and you have some like uh, adipocytes like fat cells um i don't even know <laughs> what other types of cells appear in like a cut of meat Maybe, like connective tissue like fascia right like something yeah and you could just like spit, sit there and basically take those individual cells and like print them in patterns to make your your synthetic skin or meat this, or whatever this is getting dark. You're basically talking about like printing a gigantic bicep. I mean, we could just have like world's strongest person now is just an arm that we just run an electrical current through and it just flexes and lifts up a cow or something like this is <laughs> based on what you're saying. That's that should be possible, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, I guess I don't know enough about the um, there's a lot of like hard questions that are reaching beyond what I know about this technology of like, okay, well, yeah, but cells are just cells. Like there's this whole extracellular matrix component that involves like how cells communicate with each other and how close they are and whether they are like bonding to each other, obviously, especially relevant between like muscles and nerve nerve cells, but it's, it's all kind of there. And so um, it's hard to say whether something printed like this could just, you know, be, be a synthetic arm, for example. Uh, if, if we had that technology, I think we'd, probably not be working on robotic arms <laughs> well i mean maintaining a biological creature system wh whatever you want to call it is much more difficult than maintaining a robotic system that runs off of energy in a different way right i, I think that's the biggest challenge is if we <laughs> if if we can hire labor to to do things efficiently like taking care of a horse is much more difficult than taking care of a Boston Dynamics dog and that there's a reason why we choose the efficiency factor uh, even with all the other downsides of it that might come along um, I, I would say that's that's the main reason why <laughs> I don't I don't see cy cybernetics really like having a place in workforce I, I, I find that to be more in getting um, what's the best word like a hive or a conglomerate of, of creatures that run off of a <laughs> Uh, state of systems like you have an algorithm and like ants run on an algorithm right and they 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 all know what their purpose is uh through chemical signals and we can code that in and we can we could make a colony of ants do work if we wanted to sure and if you scale if you could scale that up and use that as a biological system that takes care of itself then that that would be one reason to do that but that's a harder problem for uh just solving a simple issue that you have like if you just have a problem that needs a solution you you could make a robot do that much quicker than you could probably program a colony of <laughs> ants or tiny tiny biological creatures to do it i would think <laughs> yeah yeah that makes sense if you're if your goal is to move some dirt the the tractor is going to be better than programming the ants <laughs> or hiring a couple of donkeys yeah <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to clean up anything either um but I, actually, that's like a super fascinating point. I, this is a, I mean, who cares that we're a little off topic, but I just love the idea of utilizing uh, biology to, to do work or to, to solve problems or to help people or help themselves or other creatures. I mean, there's so many ways to do this oh. on, on a really cra crazy note. Like there's the mosquito controversy that's happening in Florida and everything right now where they're releasing mm -hmm. these genetically modified mosquitoes and... I mean, 
this is the future is is gonna blend robotics and uh biology yeah yeah for sure um and i I think you can even see that in it kind of tying it back to this like food supply chain question i mean there's this idea of you know taking uh biological organisms usually simpler ones right like yeast or bacteria or something and you know coding them or programming them to get them to do uh, produce something that you want and that might be fuel as a byproduct or it might be some sort of protein paste or (laughs) a color or a dye um, or whatever that you need and it's kind of a I guess in the same way and it's maybe not like work it's not like physical work as we might think about um, with the mosquitoes or the whatever the dolphins they trained in, <laughs> to carry radars or whatever i can't remember that experiment <laughs> that was a real thing right yeah 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 it was like world war ii thing or something i can't remember um oh sometimes history just sounds like it was made up like what are we talking about yeah yeah were the fire bats oh that was terrible Wait, what were the fire bats again i think i've heard this was, was this in vietnam yeah yeah exactly i think it was like um they trained basically or it wasn't really trained that's i guess the worst part of it in some ways they basically took a bunch of bats and like tied uh, effectively like napalm canisters to them and like then let them all go roost uh in people's homes and then just like set off these napalm canisters and since the bats were all roosted under like the roofs and kind of like in the houses like in attics and stuff it just like was this complete devastation both of like citizens and animals and environment um so get def- covid one two three seven and 13 yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> so i think it there's definitely places the this kind of stuff can go wrong i mean anytime you're you're playing with a natural system and letting it loose into mother nature how would you ever know what the consequences are going to be there's just no way you can right i mean it's it it will take its own path because you can't control any factors beyond this This is why the mosquito thing is so controversial Mm -hmm. um i might have thought of a name for the podcast what do you what do we think about the name new perspective oh i like that you know nice and simple leaves room for us to talk about literally anything we want like (laughs) napalm bats (laughs) yeah (laughs) I mean, I just like the idea. Yeah, I, I'm all about trying to think about things from different angles. And I, I think that's kind of what we're doing here is we're, we're looking at topics. So anyway, well, maybe that could be it. Yeah, no, that's a good no one. one can, no one can let us know what they think, but we'll make a decision. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what, is there anything, any other interesting examples of animals being uh, taken control of? I mean, we look at dogs. We've, we've basically forced dogs to become our companions and do whatever we want keep us company make us happy uh sometimes do labor for us (laughs) we have basically enslaved dogs but they love us for it yeah it's true (laughs) so um a kind of like really creepy example of it is is a common uh science experiment actually that people do uh, in brain computer interfacing which is uh creating remote control uh roaches so oh yeah so kind of like i hate this yeah exactly thanks i hate it (laughs) um so kind of like uh the ants that are pretty like they have a simple nervous system you can predict you you know what they're going to do if you give them a certain stimulus uh it's the same for roaches and so it's not really a brain computer interfacing project in the same way that we would like to imagine because roaches don't really have brains per se um but Effectively, you can take electrodes and tie them to the antennas of a roach. And when an antenna is stimulated, the roach will go the opposite direction. And so if you can create this tiny little stimulator device that you put on top of a roach, uh, you can basically drive a roach around by stimulating its antennas back and forth. Uh, it's a little bit creepy. <laughs> uh, how, how simple the mind of a roach. I, I remember this happened. In, uh, there was a researcher in Japan that did this. And I remember reading about it when I was living there. And they were saying that he, that he clocked a speed of like 31 miles an hour with his remote control roach or something oh like that. Gosh. Roaches can can move insanely fast. And in case anybody didn't know, their legs move in a, in a vibrational pattern that makes them move faster than walking. It's so bizarre uh, and kind of cool at the same time. So if you can vibrate your legs in a certain way, you can move faster than is physically possible by walking. <laughs> that's what roaches do. That's why they climb walls at incredible speeds. I, I don't like that. 
Uh, but yeah, I feel like yeah. that's kind of like the most direct example of uh, controlling an animal for a purpose, I guess. But I'm sure there's... What, what, what was the purpose? <laughs> that's like, maybe that's actually not a good example for that exact question, which is there's really no purpose. <laughs> it's Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, that's a science experiment. To scare people, I, I guess. That's that, that's the only thing I could think of. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know of many other... I'm sure there's just endless examples. I mean, there we've enslaved animals to do lots of things, but I don't know that that's quite the same thing. We haven't really like taken control of them, quote unquote, even though we've been riding horses and we have been farming and milking things. <laughs> Sounds so wrong when you <laughs> think about it. We're just milking animals for their delicious nutritional goo. I don't know. I don't I'm 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 not a fan of uh, animal milk anymore. I only drink like nut milks and whatever. But when you when you think about it, like nutrition and all this stuff, I think because I'm reading so much about physics and uh, and sciences, I, I keep coming back to this same conclusion of everything is just made from this code and these molecules, and they're put together in a certain way, and they're they're influenced by their environment and everything is a reactionary set of constituents. I mean, there isn't really much more to life and matter than that, I would say. What, would you agree with that, Nick? I mean, yeah, my my neuroscience background, I think we've had a conversation about this in the past, about the kind of reactionary aspects of biological processes of life, and leads to all these questions about free will and consciousness that we probably shouldn't get into on our food supply chain <laughs> discussion. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, exactly. And I, I guess in some ways that makes it, you say, okay, well, again, trying to come back to food supply chain a little bit, it's like, okay, well then is it so bad that I have that product or that thing? Cause it's just, you know, a different makeup. It's a different, the same thing in a different soup. <laughs> um, but I guess it's it's a the, really all of it, all of it comes down to the reason that we kind of question ourselves on all of these things is we are concerned about how they're going to impact our health, and so I guess that's really the question that needs to be answered at the end is like okay, well, is this going to make me sick? Is this going to affect me in the long term? Yeah, which we don't always have the answer to, uh, and everything is again not as clear as black and white. And I think a lot of like diet and choices for what you want to eat. Sometimes they, they seem like they're the healthy thing, but maybe they're not giving you enough nutrition or maybe they're not what your body needs. And it really is quite impossible to understand what your body needs to a high efficiency level as a, a normal human being all the time. Um, Cause we have hormone balances. We have nutritional needs, vitamins. I mean, keep your immune system healthy and, eat good things, but you can't have all the answers. And I, I think a lot of people are trying to solve for the right answer. They, they think that there is a solution that will be the best possible thing. Their, their keto diet or their whatever diet or the, like just maintaining some level of balance and equilibrium. But I don't think it's quite that simple in my opinion anyway. Yeah, I think that's one of the problems is that people try to take this like one size fits all approach to diet and in some way like in some way you can right there's like basic nutritional standards we've tried to adapt it's like okay well you know sailors found out that you need to get vitamin c or you're gonna get scurvy <laughs> um <laughs> but at, at the same time like i think people humans animals uh have these kind of really complex dietary needs that we still don't really fully understand it's easy for us to look at like the daily required you know, vitamins or whatever and say, okay, well, I got my 100% vitamin A and I got my 26,000% vitamin B and I'm like, good to go. Um, but <laughs> in reality... Why, why would you need 26,000%? <laughs> I'm just going with those... Uh, usually the, the vitamin B12 packets just severe... The zip fizz numbers, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> severely overserve. Um, but we've actually seen so much different aspects of health connected to diet and not even just in the like oh, yeah, you, you don't feel good or you have stomach aches or, you, uh, or you, you're obese or whatever, um, but also into these, like, diseases that we really we didn't think were related to diet at all before, like a neurodegenerative disease like Alzheimer's or 
multiple sclerosis or um, even people who have like looked at like, you know, macular degeneration or like blindness basically and some of these other things that can be fixed through, through diet um, or even like uh, kind of cognitive diseases. Like uh, there's diets that re- reduce the symptoms of autism, for example. Um, and so it's kind of interesting when you th- start thinking about like food needs and like health there's a lot out there that we we really don't understand, and trying to say that a keto diet's gonna you know be the best for everybody is not. <laughs> yeah, or yeah. understanding how it will affect you is is really difficult. But this this brings me to a point. I I would like to do an episode sometime on just the placebo effect because I honestly believe that, the, and I'm gonna say yes. I honestly believe that the placebo effect is the most important and powerful tool you could ever possibly have as a human being. The placebo effect will allow you to do anything, to overcome anything, to, to start and grow a business, to make money, to uh, getting better and having a healthy lifestyle or outcome. It is, I think your mindset, you can convince yourself to be anything and to do anything and to change your biological makeup in quite profound ways. Uh, and personally, I've found this true over and over and over again. It doesn't matter if you know that it's not real. You can just believe in the placebo effect. <laughs> and that's probably more important than um, trying to, to make minute, refined decisions in consuming different things. That's what I think anyway. Yeah, uh, I think placebo effect, or whether you want to call it placebo effect, or um, what do they call it, like functional visualization, um, in some cases, uh, same effect is is definitely really interesting um and also like pretty much unexplained uh <laughs> in, in for the most part which is also i think what makes it uh, all the more interesting yeah um well we've been going for quite a bit an hour and 40 or something should we maybe come up with some kind of a conclusion or like thoughts on what we've talked about that that might be a nice wrap up or or maybe leaving more open questions i don't know yeah so i guess coming back to the very original question what it wasn't even really a question i guess but the prompt was food supply chains and kind of thinking back uh, to where things come from um i guess one of the things that we we didn't talk about that i think would be interesting to follow up or hear back on somehow is kind of how the like just-in-time economy uh, plays into these like food supply chains because it's all like a matter of like uh, efficiency right like it's it's more efficient to try to create this like uh, perfect like this lean manufacturing process basically Uh, but it's also can lead to fragility and I think that as a whole concept is kind of interesting to explore not just within food supply chains but kind of everywhere what do you mean by that exactly? It can lead to fragility. Um, I think it, it it just becomes a system that can be uh, kind of easily broken. So, like, take uh, Tyson Meats, for example. I don't know why I'm just, like, constantly on this, like, meat binge right now. Yeah. <laughs> we eat a lot more than that. In fact, I don't eat that. <laughs> Maybe that's why I know the most about it. But You're craving it because you used to. I know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I want a Tyson chicken nugget. Give me that pink slime. Oh, no. <laughs> um, no. Um, but... Uh, I guess what I mean by that is, like, for example, um, Tyson, they they did this kind of, like, big push to consolidate uh, kind of meat processing, or rather, all steps of it, all kind of vertical steps of the chain. So the farming and the processing and um, kind of distribution of it. And so instead of, like, having all these kind of little individualized uh, processing plants that, like, took from different farmers and uh, distributed uh, multiple types of kind of packagings or distribution channels so for example they would have like a a, a grocery store retail channel and a restaurant channel and like a business to business like uh, put our chicken inside of your tv dinner channel uh whatever um they instead said okay we're gonna make like three big plants one of them is gonna exclusively serve restaurants one of them is gonna exclusively serve uh grocery stores and one of them is gonna exclusively serve uh, the the business to business TV dinner people, and it's not it's not quite that black and white or that strict, uh, but they kind of went along that path, and so then it, when COVID hit, uh, they they couldn't really kind of like rejig their restaurant uh, distribution place 
to like dish out food to the grocery stores. It just didn't have the like tooling and machinery and expertise and people um, and workflows to like do that. And so suddenly they couldn't process uh, all the food that was coming into them from their farms. And all these people didn't have anything to do. And this kind of created this kind of huge problem <laughs> basically uh, where suddenly you have this kind of like meat shortage because the grocery store demand spikes, but the uh, restaurant demand drops, but the distributor basically something, somebody early on in the chain couldn't keep up with it. And that's kind of that like fragility. You were, you're producing just the right amount of stuff to just the right places in the most efficient way possible, but it made you not adaptable. Yeah. It, it... And this is just a gross example. I mean that in the true essence of the word gross. But <laughs> this is because we're we're talking about like animals here. We're talk we're talking about something that is supposed to have a life and a purpose, or I mean, not a purpose. We won't get into that, but just something that is is a being that has feelings, emotions. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I, I would say we could argue uh, becoming a cog in a in a machine, and the answer becomes. Like there's there's a an issue with how this system is set up that's being controlled, so we end up slaughtering like warehouses of pigs or yeah. uh, doing w- whatever horrible thing. And there there's just better solutions for getting food. And like we 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 shouldn't be so reliant, and we also shouldn't uh, put stake into eating things that are part of this chain. I would say, um, and maybe that's where my conclusion is going to more come from is that putting in the effort to both learn and explore your local environment, uh, to find food and maybe try some different foods, especially if you're living somewhere new or like kind of new. I mean, if you live in a foreign country, you will find so many new kinds of vegetables and, and, um, fruits and whatever else that you've never tried before or even seen. Uh, and you can find it local. And I think, putting in that extra effort is worth it. And you'll find that the connection with the story and the human element behind the food will also be uh, worth the effort that you put in. I, I'll, I'll make that as my, my guarantee promise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I guess that's kind of my takeaway too. If, if there's anything you can do to kind of eat more locally, but also expand your kind of like creative options with that local choice selection, um, I think it provides you both, like you said, a, a kind of more interesting story and human interaction with the people that are providing the food. But also, I think it's beneficial uh, in many ways from a logistics perspective and an um, environmental perspective. Um, it's all useful. And to your point about like visiting new places and trying new foods, I think sometimes people get wary of that because they're like, oh, I tried this cool new fruit in Japan that I can't have here in the U.S. Um, I think that's kind of where things like fusion cuisines are born where it's like, okay, well, I'm going to make that like Japanese style dish or whatever, or try to mimic the flavor of that, that thing that I ate uh, with my local uh, choices. So it's, it's kind of interesting how you can, I think it spawns creativity, I guess, to have those experiences. Yeah, that's very true. And consuming food is a, a way that we bond as creatures anyway. So if you can find something exciting then that makes you cooler. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. The adventurous eater. <laughs> if you want to be cool, introduce your friends to something they haven't eaten before. It works every time. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to be a meat and potatoes kind of person, as they say. <laughs> exactly. That's that's a great ending point. Well said, Nick. Don't be a meat and potatoes person. And... <laughs> I would encourage everyone to to try being vegetarian for a while if you want to. It makes it made me feel better, like health wise. I have felt so much healthier. Oh, for after sure. After making this switch, yeah. Um, it, it, it's not even yeah. And even vanity aspects, right? Like uh, when I was younger, I kind of struggled with like acne and things like that. And I stopped drinking milk, and that just like went away. Like it just disappeared. Yep. Yeah, it is quite interesting that the there's so many other aspects you didn't think about for the reason of switching or, or trying it. And then I just think there's a lot of positive things that come out from it. I, I just feel better and I feel uh, less tired in fact than I did mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when I was eating more meats. Um, 
that said, like I still crave certain things sometimes, but it's not it's not so bad. Mushroom uh, bacon is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and a subject I guess we didn't explore too much was kind of we jumped from tofu to uh, lab grown meats, but I mean, obviously all these things like Impossible Meats and Beyond Meat. Uh, are, are filling gaps there for people, uh, I think making it easier to make the transition. And we were already seeing a lot of people do that uh, simply because of supply available. There's not meat on the shelf, so they buy the Beyond Burger. Yeah. And did you know that you can also go forage? If you live anywhere near a forest, there's a high chance you can forage something. Uh, you just need to put in a little effort to find out what. Um, it's not true everywhere, but... Like in Norway, I, I just went out foraging for wild mushrooms and blueberries, uh, lingonberries. There's quite a lot to get. Um, there are mushrooms in Utah, but they're harder to find. There's, uh, yeah, different things in different places. I would say that's that's quite a rewarding thing to do. And getting out into nature and then like getting your own food without paying for it is <laughs> is a really empowering feeling surprisingly so yeah these aren't just win-win situations these are like quadruple win situations <laughs> yeah i was gonna make a halo reference but we're no it's it's not 2006 anymore <laughs> cool well um thanks for for listening everybody and maybe we'll outro with some I thought it might be nice to outro with some audio clips each time. Maybe we'll have one of Nick's banjo songs. Nick plays the banjo now. Yes. I'm a drummer and Nick Nick is a is bassist and banjoer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I guess we both do electronic music or at least have at some point. Yeah. But that's um so yeah, well cute 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 Nick's banjo. <laughs> <laughs>